Cut, and this is The K-Cut. I'm Rachel, I write for Films Fatale, and I just launched a new column this week about lost films. You should go and check it out. James here, content creator from Michigan. I produce and release music under the AS Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. And I am actually starting to finalize my outline for my series that'll be on Films Fatale. So stay tuned for that. I'm Andreas. I am the creator and main editor of Films Fatale. And my uh, top 100 short films of all time is going to be released July 5th, just a day before my and James's birthday. So, so basically, you should all read Films Fatale. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you listen to this... But you want it in visual form. You should check out Films Fatale. Yeah, that would be great. But Just don't do both at once. No, because uh, then you're not going to get all the information from, from either source. So, you know, you, you want to digest everything as a cinephile. But this is still June, the month of June, the tail end of it. And we wanted to use this opportunity to discuss the, some of the, our favorite works of LGBTQ plus cinema. So... From what I understand, what we are going to do today is we're going to talk about one LGBTQ-themed film that either resonated with us or was important in history or something like that. And then we're going to talk about a creator and who was part of the LGBTQ plus community and what their impact was and how they were part of the film scene. Yes, there are so many different moments from pre-code cinema to new queer movements, so many underground films. It's virtually impossible to cover the entire scope of LGBTQ plus cinema in just, you know, like a half hour to 40 minute episode. But I feel like we have such varied tastes in film. We have a lot of overlap, but I feel like we can cover a lot of bases just by our handful of picks as well. So um, I guess we should start off with our individual film picks and why they're poignant in such a discussion. So I... James, what is your individual film that you would like to bring up for Pride Month? I decided to go with Gus Van Sant's 1986 debut, Mala Wow. Okay. I actually haven't even seen that one. So is that like one of the first new queer cinema films? I believe so. I don't exactly know when that was coined because I know it was a journalist who actually coined that term. So, I mean, I think when you talk about new queer cinema, I think it's maybe late 80s, early 90s is when... It was kind of pegged as that, but it, it was definitely, if, if it wasn't, I'd say it's probably a, a precursor to the movement. Okay. That's, uh, I actually don't know anything about it. I'm a, I'm a fan of Gus Van Sant's, especially like my, my own private Idaho, you know, countless other fantastic films, Milk. Uh, so please do tell what this is about and, uh, and its relevancy. Well, it's funny. It's simple. It follows the story of Walt. And he's a gay store clerk and he kind of gets in this really interesting love triangle between these two Mexican migrant workers. And one is the object of his affection. And then he kind of settles for the other one while still pining for the other one. And it's a really good exploration, not only in a film that's unapologetically LGBTQ, but it also kind of shatters a bunch of barriers it's like okay now it's like not only is it you know homosexual relationships it's mixed race relationships and just a lot of kind of groundbreaking and forward thing stuff is almost ahead of its time and it was also made on a shoestring budget so that's one of the reasons i love it it was made for twenty five thousand dollars, so i'm a sucker for those kind of films but yeah i think it's just it's a good instance of showing people in this film being gay isn't the butt of the joke 
and it's not done in this maximalist, almost parody form that you usually see in movies. It's just a practical story of just a gay person trying to navigate his love life. That sounds like a really good watch. Do you think that it had an impact on future filmmakers? I can imagine it did. I don't know how, because it was a smaller film, so it obviously didn't get like really wide distribution, but I'm sure it probably did influence people. I know a lot of the bigger filmmakers, I don't necessarily see them pointing to this film, but it is kind of one of those almost like kind of unspoken pioneering films of a time for, you know, that community to kind of create their own art and tell their own stories without the system being involved in trying to censor them. Yeah, because, I mean, for so many years, it wasn't even like their stories were being told. They were being outright hidden by Hollywood and men, many other major industries. Something which you're you're obsessed with indie films. So uh, one from the 80s, which you might like, James, a lot, is um, Parting Glances by Bill Sherwood, which was one of the first films, especially during the AIDS crisis, to represent it normally. Like, not this huge thing that was, like, the stigma that was going around in the 80s. Um, So I feel like that's also, like, an early uh, fantastic example of one of the first actually listened to voices of of gay cinema out of the independent scene. So um, what when did that uh, Gus Van Sant film come out? Well, it says, I believe it was made in 1986. Well, according to Wikipedia, which, you know, is always so reliable. It's 1986, but it was released in 1988. And I don't remember the the year it was licensed for release, but Criterion actually has licensed to the film. Fabulous. Nice. Cool. Well, that is fantastic. Uh, Gus Van Sant in general is great, so I'm going to have to check that out. Rachel, what film did you select for, for Pride Month? Well, I went with a short surprise, surprise, and it's one that many of you out there will have seen, and that is Trevor. Have either of you seen it? Yes, and uh, spoiler alert, and this isn't why I brought up my list, pure coincidence, it made my top 100 shorts. Fabulous. So it, it's a beautiful short. Yeah, it's a wonderful, it's the story of a teenage boy. He's a young teenager, and he's just starting to figure out that he's gay, and he's got a crush on a friend, which I think most of us have been through at some point in our lives. So he's going through all these struggles, and meanwhile, everybody around him is not very supportive. And so... What's interesting to me is how much this movie manages to pack in the short time that it has. It can be heartbreaking, it can go to very dark places, but it also can be quite funny or really a warm film, a nice film, and it can flip on a dime. Um, the young actor who plays Trevor, he's, he's just excellent, and I really hope he's still acting because anybody who can encompass that many moods in the course of 13 minutes is talented. What I especially admire about this film is that it had such an impact at the time. I believe it was shown on... Wasn't it shown on HBO, I think? Ah, something like that, yeah. The movie at the time had a huge impact. It tied for the Academy Award for Best Short. It was shown on HBO and it was linked towards um, support numbers and helplines for youth, especially LGBT youth who were having trouble. And that eventually became what we know as the Trevor Project, which is a huge organization that provides tons of support to young people. And I think that far from what that movie is, and it is a very good movie in its own right, the impact it's had in the community is enormous. And so that's why I want to talk about it tonight. Not so much for the filmmaking. It's all on YouTube, so I would highly recommend it. 
Absolutely. Uh, just just for those wondering, uh, yes, it is one of the only ties in, in Academy Award history, especially of our lifetime. It tied with Franz Kafka's It's a Wonderful Life, which stars uh, Fantastic Richard E. Grant, and it was directed by uh, Doctor Who himself, Peter Capaldi. But mm-hmm. yeah, both both films are, are excellent. I'm so glad that if there was ever a tie, both won. But Trevor, if I had to pick, is the better of the two. It's heartbreaking that film yeah and you brought up the trevor project which launched was launched because of this short yes and that's still going even like as recently as a couple of days ago when the nfl player uh carl nasib i don't know if i'm pronouncing his name incorrectly uh came out publicly as gay and is one of the first uh, pro athletes to do so in a very long time or you know one of the only ones in general and I believe is the only active NFL player to actually ha- have come out. So it's a very, very bold thing. And he actually donated publicly to the Trevor Project and put them like, you know, in that social awareness of like, you know, the sporting community. So um, th- I'm so glad to hear that it's almost been 30 years. They're still going strong. Mm-hmm. And it was developed by this short, which obviously I don't want to say too much about because it's special. And just a really good short in general. But this short in in particular, the fact that this hotline and charity spawned out of it is very touching. If you see the short, you'll you'll know what we mean. It's it's well worth a watch. And the project itself is well worth looking into. What I admire so much about this film is that despite its very, very sad and dark subject matter at some points, it still has this hope shining through. It still has this sort of reverence for life. And it's beautifully portrayed from the writing to the acting to the soundtrack. So definitely check it out. Absolutely. And as as you pointed out, it actually is on YouTube. Mm-hmm. So it's only 23 minutes. And it's got Diana Ross music, which, come on. It's <laughs> amazing. So... An absolute must. Uh, We're going to move on to my one now. This film kind of just went unnoticed by the general masses until like the last couple of years. Um, Actually, a fellow classmate of ours, Rachel, brought this up and I I took their advice and it was an excellent film. It's The Watermelon Woman by, by Cheryl Dunye. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's an independent film from the 90s. Uh, she herself is uh, is a lesbian person of color. And that's what this film touches upon. Actually, specifically the film itself, it's, it's interesting. It's a fake documentary that's being made within the film, which itself is a feature. But Cheryl's kind of playing herself, but not herself. It's very meta, but... Um, Cheryl in the film, played by herself, the director, is trying to discover, you know, how far back like racism goes in, in film history and why uh, like black voices were, were silenced. But it also touches upon her sexual preference. And it's it's really unique because in the film it also touches upon a subject matter which I feel like especially for its time, lesbianism I don't feel like it was taken seriously when it was shown back in like the eighties and nineties when it was first coming around. I feel like a lot of it was for uh, like fetish reasons or just like the male gaze. So first off it was being shown, I feel like properly. Secondly, it was touching upon interracial relationships within the gay community. 
which I feel like is a very specific topic that just was not being addressed. All in all, just everything that she touches upon in this film, it's as if she tackled like 10 different things for the first time because nobody else wanted to touch them. And it's just a brilliant film in general, but it's very groundbreaking with the many things that it discussed. That sounds incredible. Yeah, it's it's a great one. And um, you can find that on YouTube as well, but rentable on YouTube, it's well worth the money. Cheryl Dunier, I, I personally would go ahead and do that. But on the topic of Cheryl Dunier, there are so many filmmakers whose filmographies or activism are so noteworthy for the LGBTQ plus community. And I feel like they're also worthy of being discussed. Uh, so let's, let's get into some of our favorite filmmakers for pride month. James, I guess we'll go the same order. James, uh, who do you have for, for pride month? I decided to go with filmmaker Greg Araki mainly because his style. It's like if John Waters and David Lynch had a baby. <laughs> kind of. I see that. And it, Especially because his earlier films, it's like when I say unapologetically gay, that's what they were like to the point where it was like, you know, he had no problem being vulgar if he wanted to. But also he had this weird like surreal slant to some of his material. But I think it's just, you know, the way he approached telling stories in the context of LGBTQ was really interesting. Like his first feature, The Living End, which was made in another film that made on a shoestring budget. That movie deals with this drifter who goes ends up connecting with this guy who's just kind of like, you know, I I think he's like a film critic or something. He's just kind of like bored with life. And then after this drifter guy kills a homophobic cop, they go on this road trip and, uh, oh, they're both HIV positive. Yeah, they jam-packed a lot of stuff. So it's it's kind of really bizarre. But he also was very forward thinking in, you know, tackling bisexuality or like anything, even like ambiguity and, you know, fluidity because, there's his second feature. I think it was his second feature. The No, it was his third feature, The Doom Generation. It actually stars James Duvall and Rose McGowan as a couple. And they're having a road trip. And they pick up this hitchhiker. And there's a fair amount of times when the hitchhiker is interacting with James Duvall. It's like there are these flashes of this kind of like a homoerotic tension that kind of makes you question like, are these guys into each other? And then, yeah. And then, you know, they, he deals with similar themes throughout. And then, uh, as Andreas, as you saw with mysterious skin, he also, you know, tackled trauma in relation to the LGBTQ community with, uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt's character. (laughs) And yeah, I just think it was, you know, he was just very forward thinking. He just wasn't afraid to be himself. And just, you know, he was as outlandish as he wanted to be while also making statements. And yeah, it's like, you know, he really did, he made it cool to be weird. It's like, you know, people there people were already having problems just being themselves in the LGBTQ community because of the way the, you know, public perception. But he made it like, oh, okay, I'll just turn it up a notch and make really strange films with all these crazy characters. Yeah, almost like uh, you know, it's interesting that you you brought up John Waters, because John Waters also had like his own uh his his own signature style, let's say. Uh, I know Greg Araki is uh, arguably one of your favorite directors, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah, I have very limited exposure to his stuff, but Mysterious Skin was fantastic. The only other thing I've seen him I've, I've seen of his is uh, White Bird and a Blizzard. I think it's called the one of Shailene Woodley. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Everything else I have not seen. So. Oh, you're in for a treat because like Mysterious Skin is probably his most tame film. Well, that that's saying a lot then. So. Uh, you know me, I, I love being out there, so I would love to check out more Greg Araki for sure. I think he's an excellent example, and just 
Fantastic. Uh, Rachel, who have you selected for, for your filmmaker for Pride Month? I actually selected a duo. And Ooh. so these guys are associated with a studio that is synonymous with quality. They're famous for their sort of prestige period pieces, great production values, darling of the Oscars. And they were also a personal and professional couple. They worked and lived together for 44 years. And that is James Ivory and Ismail Merchant. Uh, yeah. Please tell us more about Merchant Ivory Productions. Right. So they specialized, as I said, in kind of period pieces, especially early 19th cent- or late 19th century, early 20th century films. They did things like The Bostonians, Howard's End, um, A Room with a View. They worked frequently with Ruth Prower Javala, who was uh, often the writer on their films. And they just had this really solid partnership and a very distinct style that created some of our longest lasting pieces, especially great adaptations of literature, you know, Forrester, Henry James, that kind of thing. So their impact, I think, was also very mainstream because these were the movies that were getting tons of attention. And so you often had Merchant Ivory films in your homes and they became synonymous with they, it was sort of like how you say band-aid when you mean a band-aid or a bandage. Merchant Ivory was this term for the prestige period piece. I just think it's amazing they were able to create this branding for themselves. Absolutely. And they were groundbreaking as well for um, their integration of, of, of English and, and Indian film industries. Yes, that's right. They were originally created to they originally created their studio to promote English language filmmaking in India. Right. And many of their films did have either subtext or explicit LGBT themes. Um, Merchant sadly died in 2005, but Ivory is still working today. And of course, his most recent film was Call Me By Your Name, for which he won the Oscar and became the oldest person to win a competitive one. Finally, yes. And you you brought up the themes. Uh, I think think they're the most important film when it comes to that side of things. Like, uh, having uh, the LGBTQ plus representation is Maurice, which what I believe was a breakthrough role for Hugh Grant because yes. you like this was like really early in his career. So pre four weddings and a funeral. Yes, exactly. So um, I feel like that's a film that might have had some dues during its time, but it's especially like recognized now. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people know what Merchant Ivory is and they associate it with a certain style, but I don't think a lot of people realize that they actually were a couple in real life. Mm-hmm. If you just know the name casually. So I just wanted to highlight them and show these two people who teamed up and left an incredible legacy and just give them a shout out. Yeah. And if you're into period pieces, I'm. if I had to pick, something that I'm not super duper in love with. Like I won't watch something because it's a period piece. Yeah. Period pieces, but merchant ivory are like two of the best when it comes to this stuff. Like they're experts. So I still have yet to see any merchant ivory. Oh, um, Howard's end is a must. I've been meaning to just like sit down and just binge the whole filmography, be just the way people talk about them. And like, Merchant Ivory is clearly a vibe, and just the way I just see it, it's like there's auteurs, and then there's like Merchant Ivory. Like they are almost like this really almost omniscient branding in film. Yeah, exactly. it's weird because I feel like, and Rachel, I don't know if you agree with me or not. I feel like so many people have tried to bite their style. Yeah, and not always very successfully. I would say my favorite no. of theirs is The Remains of the Day, partially because I love the book it's based on, but I, I just also think it's stellar performances and just a really great adaptation 
yeah, you, you can't really go wrong with, with Ivory Merchant for sure. Mm-hmm. For my filmmaker, I went with somebody who also, I feel, I feel like maybe at the time wasn't as understood, but her work is certainly being recognized now. And she's made some of the most challenging films I've ever seen. But each experience has been super, super rewarding. And that's uh, Chantal Ackerman, who is a groundbreaking feminist filmmaker, but also extremely important for her voice in the LGBTQ plus community. And her most known film is Jean Dielman. The, the name's actually longer than that, but I'm not going to butcher the French wording. Uh, Jean Dielman is over three hours long. It's literally just three days in the life of the titular character, uh, Jean Dielman. You watch her do household activities. Basically, you're, you you see like a woman trapped in the four walls of the of the movie theater screen, and you identify with this prison that society has placed a lot of women in. So that film alone has been heavily recognized in recent memory, but it, it certainly is not for the faint of heart. It's a very, very difficult film to watch. But otherwise, to get into her films that represent, uh, you know, uh, lesbianism or, the, or bisexuality, you have uh, one of my personal favorites of hers as well, Jete Il or Ayu He She. Yes. And it, pre- it presents uh, literally those relationships uh, in the film. And it's, it's this experiment that I think only somebody like Chantelle Ackerman can pull off. Uh, Rachel, I, I heard you respond. Have you seen anything of hers? Uh, just Jete Il What do you think of it? I think it's wonderful. Yeah, her stuff. Uh, that one's not over three hours, by the way. That one's only an hour and a half. So not everything she does is incredibly long. But her documentaries are really stripped down. Her features are usually audacious. She's one of the greats. And again, not for everybody. But if you want to see what like one of the greatest feminist filmmakers looks like, it's Chantal Ackerman for sure. I think it's nice to see these movies from a woman's perspective as well. I think that in a way it's a more comfortable viewing. It feels like an authentic lived experience when you watch her work. Yeah, especially something like uh, uh, Jean Dielman, which uh, is anything but comfortable in that instance. That's tough. It's one of those movies where I don't know if you can watch it more than once, but seeing it once is all you need. It'll stick with you forever. It's like punishing, knowing that society has like basically stripped so many people, depending on, you know, their gender or their color or their beliefs mm-hmm. or their preferences. And in, in this case, it's specifically women. Society has, has placed them in this box. And it's, again, it's one of the hardest watches you may ever have. But it's completely worth it if you're a cinephile mm-hmm. and you want to see, uh, again, peak feminist filmmaking. So otherwise, it is our weekly recommendations. Before we share those, which uh, this time around we've actually pre-selected, so we're going to make them also Pride-themed. But before we get into those, Rachel, where can you find us? So we can be found under the K-Cut on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can help us out by liking, rating, and leaving reviews on whichever streaming service you listen to us on. And for this month, for our Cinematic Smorgasbord, which is, oh my goodness, going to be recorded next week, um, we have another LGBT film, actually, and that is Supernova, starring Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth. I'm really looking forward to seeing it, and I hope you guys are too. 
Yeah, that's going to be great. Uh, I've heard really good things about that one. So let's do our weekly recommendations. I guess same order. Why not? Uh, James, what are you going to recommend to our listeners? I'm going to go with Kaboom by Greg Araki. I had a feeling. I don't know why. I had a feeling. Tell us why. I don't usually recommend later films as a starter film for a director, but if you want a Greg Araki's greatest hits movie, that would be this one, except it's not in a bad way, kind of like The Hateful Eight was. Not to say that that was really bad, but you know, when people go into their bag of old tricks, it gets kind of stale, but his doesn't feel like it's falling off at all. Fantastic. Sound, sounds good to me. Uh, Rachel, what about you? So mine's called Aviliac Entwined. It's a short from 2014. It's by Alethea Arnakuk-Baril. I saw this at Skabmagovat, and it's about two women in Inuit society in the 1950s, let's say. So in the far northern reaches of Canada. And they're trying to negotiate the relationship and fit in both in their own community and in the world at large. And I won't give away any spoilers, but it's well worth a look. And it's a perspective you don't usually see. That sounds good to me. I'm going to go with uh, a very obvious pick, um, filmmaker-wise. But he's one of the greatest and just amazing when it comes to just shocking films. And this film is one of the funniest I've ever seen in my entire life. I'm going to go with Polyester by John Waters. Let me tell you, uh, his obsession with like niche cinema and the movie going experiences of like smell-o-vision or, you know, stuff flying at you from the corridors. In, in the case of polyester, it's smell-o-vision. You have this little card and you smell things you shouldn't be smelling. And the late divine in the protagonistic role, just hysterical. I adore polyester. I like a lot of other John Waters stuff as well. I'm not going to recommend Pink Flamingos right now. That's a little too much to chew. But um, Polyester is the perfect bridge between his counterculture stuff and his more digestible mainstream stuff like Hairspray and Crybaby. Plus, you can't go wrong with Divine. So let's go with Polyester. So thank you for listening to us. And otherwise, that was the K-Cut. Happy Pride Month. Please be respectful and, and kind and courteous. Love each other. Let's not spread any more hate. Let's uh, go into the L-cut now. 